as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. I'd like to thank our guests right now for stopping by and, and setting this one up for us. On gas prices, they're targeting so-called corporate greed at the pump. Uh, he has an article at the American Spectator right now. On gas prices, simple economics trumps Biden's partisan agenda. He is an associate professor of economics at Texas Tech. Comparative economics research fellow Alexander Salter joining us on your 956 drive home. So what's the deal with the prices at the pump? How can you break it down for us? I can break it down very simply. It all comes down to supply and demand. Basically, prices are going up. That means that consumers are going to scale back their purchases. But here's the key. There's not a lot of great substitutes for gas, not a lot of great substitutes for fossil fuels. So if prices are up 10%, quantity demanded by customers falls less than 10%. That necessarily means that oil companies and gas companies are going to make more money. But it's due to market forces, not corporate greed. This is just how markets work. And so why is um, President Biden honing in on, uh, on, on gas companies right now? Because he's got a political axe to grind, and in some circles it looks pretty good. It's really easy to, to uh, blame the corporate greed bugabear, but if you really take that story seriously, does that mean that we have to give corporations credit for benevolence when gas prices are low? I don't think that anyone would buy that story. Again, when you have a global market for a commodity like oil, it's just not going to be the case that the greed of one or a small number of corporations, no matter how big, can impose their will on the market. It just doesn't work that way. Too many suppliers, too many demanders. Davis Rankin, your question for our guest, Alexander Salter, uh, Associate Professor of Economics over at Texas Tech University. Yeah, Professor, uh, I think we, we agree with you, supply and demand, um, until I see evidence to the contrary. But... Uh, why do you think people in the administration, this is sound like a silly question, but it's not. Why are the people in the administration, if it's so clear, supply and demand, that it works everything else, but it doesn't work with oil and gas, why are the people in the administration, the shot callers, why don't they believe that? Or don't seem to believe it? That's a great question. My simplest answer is that it's part of a larger perspective, a larger paradigm that really wants to push for a transformation of the American energy sector to embrace green energy. Now, I admire the environmental concern that motivates a lot of these pushes, but at the same time, we have to look at practical reality. So much of our energy comes from fossil fuels that if we wanted to push to renewables as fast as the administration wants to, it would be a significant source of economic disruption. The American people know that. The administration knows the American people know that. So I think that they're trying to build a, a political coalition to sustain that push. And that means that they're not afraid to bend the truth a little bit, economically speaking, if it comes down to that. 
but they're 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 uh, you know down here I forget what percentage of the population lives at or below the poverty line, but it's a lot, and these increases across the board got to be making Christmas looking pretty bad. They're hurting. They're not hurting the oil and gas people. They've made their money, but they're hurting regular folks. I think that's right. If you look at any price hike, oil, gas, food, shelter, take any price of a good or service that's going up. And there's a lot of them to hit harder families that are living on smaller budgets because any given price increase eats up a larger percentage of that household budget. So I'm sure that the administration is doing what they think is right for the American people. But when you look at the fact of the matter, they're objectively hurting the American people and placing the burden disproportionately on the least among us, those who are least capable of bearing it. Yeah, I like alternative energy, but I don't like it at the cost of you know putting the thumb on the scale in preferences <laughs> that seems to be going on right now. Our guest is Alexander Salter. Uh, Associate Professor of Economics, Texas Tech University, our guest on your 956-Drive Home. We're, we're talking about the state of gas and, and the economy right now. And as far as you know, oil production is concerned, and we've been tapping a lot from the, the oil reserves, and I don't... I mean, there's just a lot of bad ideas that are going around right now. Do you think it, 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 we're in a situation that is recoverable? Are we still in that stage, or do you think it's just all downhill from here? I think it's recoverable, but it is going to require some soul-searching on the part of the administration. At the end of the day, if you want prices to come down, the best way to do that is get quantities produced and sold up. But in order to do that, the administration is going to have to step off the gas in terms of the regulations, the fees, the restrictions on drilling, the leases that they're restricting. All of those things are going to have to go by the wayside. Can the administration actually make that sort of a change now? Well, now that the midterms are over, they might not have the political albatross around their neck, but the question remains, are they actually willing to do what's right by the energy sector? And this is a crucial time for it, since we're not just talking about price hikes, although that's bad enough. Energy has significant geopolitical implications right now. This is a world game that's being played, and right now the administration simply isn't doing it very well. I have a question. Me, yeah, Coach, me? Uh, who do you, this is not to suggest that Mr. Biden is not fully in control or making decisions about policy. But having said that, uh, do you know, is it, is it known who in the administration is the shock caller on this, the prime mover, the intellectual architect of, of this, 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 um, retreat from supply and demand? I mean, basic supply and demand. Another great question. That one I couldn't pinpoint you on. I know that a lot of these efforts are coming through EPA, Department of Energy, Department of the Interior, and we know that the president, although he's a public-spirited individual, has always been, when push comes to shove, been willing to be led by the more stern and sure-footed voices in his party. Right now, the Democratic Party is very much in the grips of far-left progressivism where this idea that we need to completely detransition from fossil fuels is sort of received wisdom. So I think that the president is doing what he thinks he needs to do to hold together his political coalition. And he probably also thinks it's good for the country. I just don't think he's thought very much about the basic economics of the scenario. Yeah, but and I, I gather, I mean, we, we I asked the same question about immigration policy, who is making the decisions. It's not the, the larger decision to 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 allow or to not do something to stymie the 
people coming 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 over. Uh, what what do you think? Do you, do you have any insight into what oil and gas people think? Not just the people at the top of Exxon Mobil and Royal Dutch Shell or whatever they call it, but also the pumpers, the the people who go out and, and get the oil that, that they then sell to the big companies. I'm sure that they're hurting too, because right now all across that industry, what we're seeing is that costs are actually rising faster than revenues. And so what that means is that cost of access to capital going up, trying mm -hmm. to find workers, those costs are going up. It's really hard for this industry as a whole, big fish or small. So part of that is the general economic environment. And frankly, that is beyond the president's control. I think that we give presidents too much credit when the economy is good and blame them too much when the economy is bad. But there's also a lot of sector-specific problems right now to the extent that those are causing general phenomena, input costs rising faster than output costs. Mm -hmm. That's going to be something that necessarily is going to be policy-determined. So the administration could change that if they want to, but I won't hold my breath. Yeah, and the idea of a of a windfall tax, and no pun intended, is like putting gasoline on a fire for, for all of this, correct? And they're not going to get it through Congress. I mean, it's... it's I'm I'm Mr. Expert. I realize I sound like that, but I cannot fathom that that would get through Congress. So that would be extraordinary if it got through Congress. And then again, the president did just uh, try and spend four hundred billion dollars of the people's money without Congress on student death relief. So now, who knows? Maybe he thinks he can do something fancy with an executive order. <laughs> wouldn't you Wouldn't you like to Wouldn't you like to be president and have executive orders and not have to mess with all those? <laughs> those prima donnas over there yeah they need to stop giving him a pen and replace it with a rubber stamp uh oh. professor thanks a lot for your time Thank here you. that's uh associate professor of economics alexander salter he's got the article out at the american spectator on gas prices simple economics trumps biden's partisan agenda here's our guest on news talk 710 kurv your 956 drive home you're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Joining us right now to talk about something that I think is just very, very fascinating. And I'm looking forward to seeing the result of this. The uh, lens that's being put into the Port Isabel Lighthouse. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very excited about this. I know this is a... a not something that you'd expect me to say that I'm excited about, but I'm I'm told I'm I'm yeah. so about the ways of the past and just the way mm. things were. Valerie Bates is the uh, marketing director for Port Isabel and the manager of the Port Isabel Lighthouse State Historic Site. She joins us now on your nine five six drive home. So let's go all the way back to the start of the lighthouse. Uh, what what was it used for, and how far back does it go? goes back to 1852 at a cost of $15,000, if you can imagine. Wow. 
um, to build that lighthouse in 1852. And it was for the protection of maritime traffic, both life and goods. And uh, there's there actually is an account from the 1830s or so where um, a lady was caught at the sandbar off of Brazos Island, and she 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 whiled away the time by looking through the spyglass at all the wrecks out there. So it it Good. was uh, it was needed to protect uh, that maritime traffic. And at, at what point was it uh, did, did it cease the use for for maritime traffic? In 1905, it was decommissioned. Uh, the railroads had changed some things. The economy had changed some things. The direction of exports and export and imports had changed, um, and so it was deemed that it uh, was was uh, ineffective cost-wise, and so they decommissioned it in 1905. How did how did lighthouses work back then? What what powered them? What powered them was an oil lamp inside that very sophisticated uh, lens. And so there were three wicks in that oil lamp that, uh, when properly maintained uh, and, and would have a clean, bright, burning uh, flame, and through that lens would project a beam out to sea for 16 miles. Wow. So uh, it didn't take much of a, uh, of a wattage, if you will, to uh, cast that beam out across the waters. 16 miles? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 16 miles. Yes. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I imagine that it's not, this isn't something that you do with like a candle and a mirror. You know, that, I, I, I imagine there's a lot of engineering and, and thought that gets put into this sort of thing. So what, what, <laughs> what does go into it? You know, it? It may have started that way, but it was, uh, you know, with the uh, discovery of the right curvature of prisms, the right amount of prisms, that bullseye that the uh, light is projected through, um, all those things came together to really, uh, if you will, magnify what starts out as a very small light source. So uh, was uh, phenomenal, was the, the state-of-the-art lens used around the world, uh, this Fresnel lens was. Uh, they had uh, booths at World's Fairs all over the world. Um, so it was, you know, it was quite a, a feat, and it by 1850 became the standard in the United States of uh, the Fresnel lens. Joining us on 710 KURV is Valerie Bates, the marketing director for Port Isabel and the manager of the Port Isabel Lighthouse State Historic Site. We're talking about some of the history of the Port Isabel Lighthouses and some changes to come. Davis, before we get to the the changes uh, that, are, uh-huh. that are about to, to happen, do you have any uh-huh. questions for the the history of the lighthouse? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize, and I bet the listeners didn't either, that there was enough maritime traffic to make a lighthouse needed. Now, before the Port of Brownsville or the ship ship basin or the Trent Basin at Port Isabel, where would the boats be, and what would they offload or onload and how did all that work? Well, there was the natural cut at Brazos Santiago Pass, which put us about squarely in between uh, New Orleans and Tampico. So it was the the safest the sort of halfway point. There was a railroad dock that went out into the water, uh, built in 1872 or so, with a short line to Brownsville, went out yeah. 1,500 feet into the bay, and wow. uh, they would offload lighters, bring them into the bay, 
uh, put them on cars and send them on to Brownsville. So it was a it was an important and strategic import export uh, site um, in in the okay. early days for a, for a number of things, uh, produce and all kinds of things that the real Grand Valley was producing and that the real Grand Valley in northern Mex- Mexico needed. Who owns the the lighthouse? Who has a title to it? The title is filed in Cameron County by the Texas Historical Commission. So it is a state-owned property. And this brings us to today. Uh, We're speaking with Valerie Bates, the manager of the Port Isabel Lighthouse State Historic Site, our guest on your 956 drive home. This brings us to now because it's... We're going to turn it on. We're going to flip the switch, as, as Sergio likes to say, and uh, it's going to shine like the like the beacon that it is. And what behind the scenes? How long how long has this process taken? And, and uh, when when do we get to turn it on? Almost immediately in 2019, when the property was transferred from Texas Parks and Wildlife Department over to Texas Historical Commission, they began to source uh, a lens for the lighthouse. This is a reproduction lens. Um, and uh, yeah. crafted to fit the exact space in that lighthouse. Um, so in a relatively short period of time, it was sourced, uh, funds were put together, um, and uh, over the 16th and 17th, so two days to install piece by piece in the top of the lighthouse. We ran a short test uh, on the evening of the 17th. On the 9th, we are going to flip the switch on um, and uh, and then we're and as we're leading up to that, we're also determining uh, what uh, there's what wattage that we can. Uh, it's not a navigational beacon; it's a historical interpretation. So we're looking for the wattage that we can run so that it can be enjoyed, but not be a public safety issue with uh, shining a bright light into the windshields of oncoming cars. What what are these, th- uh, Valerie? What do these things cost? Because you know the joke is you can't go down to uh, the lighthouse and pick one up. Uh, and how come you yeah, didn't you do an exact no reproduction? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it cost uh, around two hundred thousand um, wow. dollars. The exact reproduction in eighteen eighty eight. That third order lens was installed, and some uh, changes have been made to the top of the lighthouse since eighteen eighty eight. So they took the original plans, uh, but the lens itself had to be uh, shortened by just a couple of inches. So the lens itself stands five feet, three inches. It stands on a pedestal, making the whole thing, the whole mechanism about 14 feet tall. So it's just slightly shorter than the original lens would have been. That's really only significant difference. You said $200,000 for this puppy? Whoa. I did. uh I can wow. imagine it's a very intricate design for the lens, and a lot of thought goes into it. What What is the, the maintenance on it? What is the lifespan of a lens? Um, well, yeah. we hope forever and ever. I um, The maintenance, the day-to-day maintenance is we do have to pay a lot of attention to it. In, uh, in the 1850s, a lighthouse keeper spent a great deal of time on the maintenance of that yeah. uh, lens, and now that we have one of our very own, we can see why. So we have to make sure that uh, water spots are removed and the brass is polished. Um, so we're asking people that visit uh, the top of the lighthouse to please look, take lots of pictures and video and enjoy, but please do not touch it. Um, you know, the oils from our, our hands leak marks mm-hmm. on there can end up actually uh, hurting the surface of the lens. So, um, you know, back in the day, it wasn't designed as a tourist uh, attraction. Uh, uh-huh. The keeper and the and his assistant or her assistant would be the ones that would be uh, 
uh, at the top of the lighthouse, but now that we have uh, some months, we have over 10,000 people in that lighthouse. So we're, we're, you know, it's like, uh, don't look with your hands, but enjoy it. And we flip the switch when again? We, we, we start the ceremony at 6.30. I imagine about 7 o'clock we will be turning that switch on and, uh, and, 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 and basking in its glory. Oh, when are the hours it's going to be operating, the light? Uh, we're still working through that. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to try to have it illuminate. There's always some kind of illumination in there, but the, the actual uh, Fresnel lens lamp, we're, we're still looking through uh, the possibility of, of how often it could be on, whether or not it could rotate, um, and, and what wattage we can crank that up to. So, but, but it will be illuminated to uh, some degree um, all the time. And the ceremony is at 6.30 on it's, December 9th? It's at 6.30. Yes, mm-hmm. December 9th. All righty. Thanks a lot for, for yeah. giving us the behind-the-scenes look at what's going on at the Lighthouse in Port Isabel. That's Valerie Bates, the marketing director for Port Isabel and the manager of the Port Isabel Lighthouse State Historic Site, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have an active shooter, multiple gunshot victims. In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Joining us on 710 KURV, it's time for some stories from the border. Alfonso Poncho Ortiz from Breitbart, Texas, joins us here today. And one of the ones I wanted to start off with is... AMLO and his vow to action after the cartel killed a general of the Mexico National Guard. Tell us what happened, Pancho. Well, this happened in the state of Zacatecas. This uh, National Guard, uh, you know, uh, this general, he was an army general with the National Guard. He was uh, heading up a uh, a uh, an operation targeting uh, uh, a kidnapping group. And basically what happened was that as soon as they arrived, a shootout started. Uh, His vehicle came under fire, so when he got down from the vehicle, he took several shots. Uh, Interestingly enough, the kidnapping group had several police officers, uh, local police officers that were part of it. So they were able to make some arrests and everything, but the general, they tried to uh, uh, medevac him, uh, but he he did not make it. So the following day, AMLO basically... uh, confirmed that you know the general had died and he promised that he would take action uh, that he would be deploying uh, hundreds of soldiers to the state of Zacatecas and if you've been following our, our chronicles Zacatecas is basically it's pretty much on fire you have cartel Jalisco new generation clashing with Sinaloa cartel you have other cartels fighting for control of the region so pretty much the violence in that area is, is, is out of control 
uh, you know, um, a lot of executions, a lot of gory crime scenes, and, and that's what's been happening there. I'm I'm curious about uh, in, during during the incident where the the general was killed. Was this necessarily this wasn't a, a, an attempted assassination or right? anything? They, they didn't know that the general was there. No, it was. Uh, it doesn't appear to be that way. Um, it, it appears that the. Well, there's two versions. One version that Amlo basically said that they they were going to go after the ones who were be who ordered the killing, so that sort of gives the appearance that he may have been targeted. In fact, uh, but the official version is that he died in the shootout. So, okay, I, so, I can see that. So it's it's up in the air to see who who's, who's behind it. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know they, how. But the, but they did say that the the cartel Jalisco new generation is the cartel behind the hit. Yeah, I don't know how Mexico, as far as their officials, their army officials, how they conduct business. I just, it, it, it's, uh, it's big news that somebody with that high of a ranking would fall like that in such a way without it raising some questions. So that's, uh, it's good, it's interesting to to hear the the two stories that are floating around. That uh, Idelfonso Pancho Ortiz from Breitbart, Texas, joining us on your nine five six drive home. Uh, some of the other stories from the Cartel Chronicles. Uh, what what are some of the other things that the cartels have been up to? Well, uh, just uh, yesterday, Nuevo Laredo, pretty much the Mexican army uh, arrested one of the the top commanders of the Cartel del Noreste faction of Los Zetas. And in response, the, the Los Zetas basically uh, set fire to vehicles, fired their weapons uh, at buildings, pretty much terrorized the city and they tried to rescue their 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 commander uh it got to the point where the basically u.s consulate basically started sending out notices telling people to just shelter in place to not go out of their houses to just wait for everything to to die down and uh you know and the, the scary part is this the u.s consulate was the one that had to send out the the alert the notice and Otherwise, people wouldn't, you know, outside of Nuevo Laredo, people wouldn't have known. After the consulate sent out the notice, then the mayor, you know, put some obscure messages saying, you know, let's pray for the city, blah, blah, blah. But it was actually the U.S. consulate that was the one that confirmed that there were large-scale gun battles in the city. So the consulate comes out, and I think I have the, I think it was a tweet here, a security alert, an emergency situation in Nuevo Laredo following an arrest operation. And they're the ones that put out like the official word, hey, something's going down here. And the response from Mexico was what? Uh, the mayor put out another tweet, an obscure one saying, oh, yeah, something's going on. You know, pray for the city. You know, we'll get through it. Something along those lines. Uh, later on in the morning, they asked AMLO uh, during his morning news conference, hey, what happened in Nuevo Laredo? And he basically gave a very short answer saying, we ar- they arrested somebody, a crime lord, a high up crime lord, and uh, it, th- that was it. Very short, very, you know, no big details on it. And that that is what, you know, they were trying to suppress the issue that they have that much firepower in a border city and Mexico's government, you know, yeah, they arrested the guy, but the cartel has still has a lot, you know, a lot of power in that particular city. Davis, go ahead. Uh, uh, this is Davis Rankin. Do you uh, know uh, the, the president belongs to the Morena party? 
which I think means brown, right? Uh, do does the uh, response or the uh, uh, behavior of mayors and governors uh, differ party to party? In other words, are the Morena Morena elected people um, like less likely to cross the president or say he's full of baloney, or is everybody on the same no pasa nada script? Well, well, well to start off, Morena does it does not mean brown. Morena is actually oh. a, a acronym for uh, Re- National Regeneration Movement. Okay. Yeah, but they, the okay. acronym right. means, uh, but Morena, but it, it has no no relation to the color. All right. Now All right. on Good. the on the uh, the mayor of Nuevo Laredo is from the same party as the governor of Tamaulipas, and the same party as AMLO. So if you okay. remember, the previous governor is the one that would send out the state police to clash with the cartel gunmen. Um, before AMLO, the military would clash with the cartel gunmen and the federal police as well. When AMLO came in, he started with the whole hugs, not bullets approach. So then only the state police would clash. Then comes this new governor, who's the one that is pulling back on the state police as well. So now you have nobody to clash with cartel gunmen. Uh, so because of the hugs, not bullets approach and, uh, when you have an operation where, like, the military, they try to arrest this one individual, and then you had chaos afterwards. Hugs, um, I mean, he, he does not literally mean, for the literalists like me out there, that the cops should be hugging these cartel people. What does that mean, really? He he said, uh, his term is abrazos, no balazos. That was the little mm. word yeah. he used, which means hugs, not bullets. His approach is that... Uh, instead of fighting cartels head on that they should push social programs so that people can uh, uh grow up the root causes way, so their employment and things of the nature instead yeah. of going into the cartel lifestyle some- while on the long term that sounds like a good option in the short term uh it's really it's it has had the opposite effect of mexico if you look at the crime statistics and the violence that's spreading you know throughout mexico this approach has had the opposite effect as cartel violence has escalated under since this approach is starting. Hey, uh, Pancho, I don't have a lot of time, but I did want to get to this one of the Sinaloa cartel hitman that was murdered in the prison riot. Uh, this sounded like a scene out of Breaking Bad, though I may be redu- uh-huh. reducing uh-huh. it a little bit too much there. What happened? Well, there's this one uh, uh, hitman. That, uh, he was part of the Sinaloa cartel. He was actually one of the main commanders that took a role when... Uh, uh, in 2019, when they tra- when the government arrested this, one of the sons of El Chapo, this is one of the main hitmen that set up the rescue operation where they basically locked down an entire city and Mexico's government yeah. backed off and released the son of El Chapo. So this is one of those hitmen. He was in a prison, and about a year ago, in a similar prison, in a, in a similar prison riot, he had killed other inmates. Well, this time around, there was another riot, and he, he bit, was the target of the hit. Pretty much, not many details are known. However, Oops. what 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 is known is that um, some of the inmates were able to disarm some of the guards, and they actually used those weapons to kill this guy and another member of the Sinaloa cartel. Is there, is there any hope for Mexico? <laughs> no. uh, the scenario looks rather grim in, in the short term. This is the Christmas season. You got to come well, up with something better than that. Well, but, no, yeah. no, David. Yeah, you know, it is. I, it is. I hate to say it is what it is, but 
Um, God bless any, Thank you, Poncho. Any, Be safe. any positivity in Mexico. And as usual, Poncho, yeah, stay safe out there. We do appreciate you relaying those stories to us from across the border. That's Ildefonso Poncho. Uh, ay, 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 that name every time. I love you, Poncho. Ildefonso Poncho Ortiz from Breitbart, Texas, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. We're well, now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Right now, our guest is the Texas economist, Ray Perryman from the Perryman Group, Dr. Ray Perryman. He's so good at it. He's got a doctorate. <laughs> uh, he's our guest on your 956 Drive Home, and we're talking about the taxes of Texas. So what do we need to know, Doc? Well, basically, what well, we're finding ourselves in a great situation this time around. Uh, the state, the comptroller has already told us we're coming in with a $27 billion of extra money. Uh, it's That number is going to go up. I, I was with the comptroller this morning for quite a while talking about that. And uh, there's some additional federal funds that can be swapped out. Wow. There's some additional uh, funds that have come in. So he'll be releasing a new number in January, but it's going to be even bigger. So this is, we've never had a situation like this in the history of Texas where we had this much <laughs> money coming into a session. Good Lord. Where do you think the money's going to end up? <laughs> well, I hope it ends up in, in some places that the state needs to invest in. By far, I think the most important one is public education. I think we, we, if you look at the demographics of this state, the growth of this state, the number of kids we have, that could be our biggest economic advantage going forward is, is our schools, is our kids and the workforce they become. But we're going to have to invest in them to make that happen. I think the second biggest one is probably broadband infrastructure because it's, it's, it's basically what you have to have. It's, you can think of it as the highway for the next economy. I mean, it's something we have to have. And people forget about things like telemedicine that became so important during the pandemic or, or remote school. But what you have, to, what people forget about is on something like telemedicine. Hospitals pretty much all have great internet, but if you don't have it on the other end of the, of the line, you still can't you mm-hmm. still can't do telemedicine effectively. So we really need to make those types of investments in broadband, in our other infrastructure, our highways and bridges, our water infrastructure. So we have a lot of needs, but but uniquely this time around, we have we have the kind of resources that can let us make a dent in that, and probably provide some property tax relief for folks and things like that as well. Yeah, that telemedicine uh, has been a real godsend. We've used that a, a couple of times in our house here, where oh, it, you just it, can't it, you it can't leave is, the bed. No question. And the pandemic really showed us just how much we need those kinds of things. I mean, I feel I feel terrible, you know, like puffy eyed and and pale in, in the in the camera while the doctor's telling me what's well, wrong. That's with always me, you know? that's bedridden, always. but still, it's it's better than going to the doctor's <laughs> office. Having to drive around like that, right? You're achy and you're, you get the chills and everything. Uh, Dr. Ray Perriman is an economist for the uh, – he's the Texas economist. He, he writes publications on everything that's economical, our guest on your 956 drive home. So where did all the where, – where did all this money come from um, tax-wise? 
Well, it came from a, a number of places. One, one is uh, obviously we, we received a lot of federal money from all the stimulus packages and that sort of thing. Well, and yet our economy stayed fairly strong, and so that that helped us a lot. We've gotten a huge amount from the oil and gas severance taxes that have been paid and the other taxes that have come about with with record oil production, primarily out in the Permian Basin, and and along with that, the universities. Uh, for example, get royalty payments off university lands. That's added billions of dollars in money uh-huh. to the state that doesn't even come into that $27 billion. So there's, we've just been very blessed this time around to have a, a combination of a lot of factors, a strong, growing economy, a vibrant, uh, record-setting energy economy, and then, and then a large uh, chunk of federal dollars coming in, all hitting at the same time. Davis Rankin, your question? Well, I want to ask him, uh, Dr. Perriman, if you if you have confidence that the leadership of Texas has the bold vision needed. But I will not ask you that question to put you in the jam. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you not asking me about that one. There are some things where I think the legislature needs to re- reassess their priorities and that sort of thing. In particular, I think that there really needs – there's been a modest commitment to public education the last two sessions, but I think that really needs to pick up uh, this time around. They seem to be getting the message on broadband, so hopefully uh, we yeah. will see some of this. I know the comptroller plans to put out some, some some of his own ideas about ways they can do some of these things effectively and make use of the money and really deal with some issues that really set Texas up to grow in the long term. That's what I hope we see happen. Uh, two questions. Is there a uh, uh, back-of-the-envelope estimate of what the, the the ideas you just named off what those would cost those would be one time i guess they're kind of in some ways they're one time cost number 1 number 2 what do you fear the legislature will do well the, as far as the the school needs the school needs to be an ongoing commitment that's not a one time thing but, yeah. but yes the broadband the broadband, some of the water resource investments we need to make, some of the highway investments yeah. we need to make, we could do those on a one-time basis and still have billions and billions of dollars left uh, to do other things with to return to the taxpayers. My biggest fear with the legislature this time around, Davis, is is that uh, they're going to pass more restrictive social legislation, whether it's reproductive rights or voting rights or sexual orientation rights. Those kinds of things are causing companies not to want to come to Texas. I think that's my biggest concern. My second biggest concern is we have a, a very important competitive uh, tax plan, uh, tax uh, uh, policy we've had for Chapter 313, it's called. That's a chapter in the government code that allows us to uh, to really encourage big investments without, Incentives. Incurring, without yeah. incurring huge property taxes. We need to do something to keep that. that they let it lapse last time. We need to bring that back or something similar to it. That's, uh, that's oh. a, a good point about the social issues. Sometimes it's the fact that you're even having that conversation at you all that, that will turn off some businesses to wanting to set up shop Absolutely. in the state. I mean, but we've already seen it happen, and, and it's going to continue to happen. And I think an important thing people forget about in that whole debate is knowledge workers are the currency of the future. Knowledge workers are the single most important thing that's going to drive economic growth. 86% of knowledge workers in the last survey said, we don't want to be in a state that does this sort of thing. That's a very, very important thing for our long-term growth. It's something we need to be cognizant of and aware of. Whatever your well, politics, I mean, it really doesn't come down to, to politics. It basically just comes down to a pure uh, economic calculation. Ray this Perryman is, is an economist. He's our guest on your 956 Drive Home. This This money, though... Uh, I, I got to ask you about the rainy day fund. Are we going to squirrel any of this away? Well, the rainy day fund basically is full. I mean, there's, there's a constitutional limit. On how that can happen. Oh, okay. <laughs> and 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 and, uh, and uh, it, it's tied to oil and gas severance taxes. 
those again have been very, very robust uh, at this point in time. So yes, the rainy day fund will will leave this session as full as it's allowed to be legally. So so there there will be no issue with that. Uh, but but basically, we put everything we're allowed to put in it uh, thus far, and, and and we still have a lot of money left over. I didn't know that there was a limit on it. Uh, Davis Rankin, final Neither. question. Go ahead. Um, there, there's been calls from uh, liberals and Democrats to increase the amount of m- Medicaid spending by the state. I always ask this question because, you know, local doctors are complaining that uh, reimbursement is just not very good. They don't want Medicaid patients in some cases. And we got a lot of Medicaid patients. Is there any uh, – do you see any uh, – any likelihood or hope that the Republicans would actually do that for the doctors? That they they are li- they're not lining up well on that, but it's certainly an issue that needs attention from a couple of perspectives. Perspective number one, you just pointed out, we don't pay docs enough to take Medicaid patients. Basically, they're ba- writing a check out of their pocket every time they take a Medicaid patient. For our home health in Texas, we're having to send people to nursing homes where there's a chronic shortage because we yeah. can't get home health workers because Medicaid pays them eight dollars an hour. I mean, we, we have all kinds yeah. of reimbursement issues in Texas Sorry. on on, uh, on what we spend now. The other big issue on that is is the Medicaid expansion uh, that the federal government's made available to us. We for every dollar we put into that in Texas, we get nine back from the federal government, and all that circulates into our health care yeah. system. It helps our rural hospitals stay, stay sustainable. It helps deal with some of the uncompensated care that hospitals in your region and elsewhere have to have to deal with. It, it brings a whole lot of benefits to the state, and there's really no reason we shouldn't do it. 38 states have now done it, red states, blue states, doesn't really matter. And, and they're all finding out that, that indeed it, it does pay off for them. And there's ways you can structure it in different ways to, to make it more palatable to some of the folks in Texas. But this is something we really need to be looking at. I've only been saying that since 2013, but uh, it is something that I hope we I'm on board now. Frankly, the, 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 political mo- the political mood is not uh, too strong for that right now, I don't think. Well, if Where you do keep we send saying the- it, if you keep saying it, it might get to the right people eventually. So nah. you got to keep trying, Doc. Dr. Ray Perriman, our guest on News Talk 710 KURV, the Texas you. economist. We have more of your 956 Drive Home coming up next. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURV. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Potomy app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.